Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Ivory. I am your host. Today, the latest in a line of Geniza geniuses. The Cairo Geniza has captured the imagination of historians for centuries. In case you forgot what a Geniza is or you didn't know in the first place, it's an area in a synagogue or a Jewish cemetery where sacred texts go to retire. Traditionally, a text is considered sacred if it's got the name of God written on it. Arguably the most famous Geniza in the world is in Cairo at the Ben Ezra Synagogue. That Geniza held documents dating to the 9th century, and those documents have helped scholars piece together what life was like for Jews and really for anybody in the Middle Ages. One of those scholars is Marina Rusto, a professor of Near Eastern Studies and History at Princeton University. Just two weeks ago, Marina won a prestigious MacArthur Fellowship. That's the award that's popularly known as a Genius Grant. She's been looking at Geniza documents to try to get a better picture of what life was like for Jews, Muslims, and Christians living under the rule of the Fatimid Empire from the 10th to the 12th centuries. We wanted to know a little bit more about her work, so we called her up at her home in Philadelphia to talk to her about it. Marina, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thanks. Thanks for having me. First, of course, huge congratulations. You are a genius. <laughs> <laughs> this must be quite a surreal time. It's completely surreal. That's, uh, that's a good way of describing it. Um, you know, the fact is my sister is still going to trounce me in Scrabble, and I still have no sense of direction. So, <laughs> you know, conclude from that what you will. Tell me, give us a play-by-play of how you found out that you won this award. What were you doing when you got the news? Um, I was out running errands with my four-year-old daughter, and uh, I kept getting phone calls from a 312 area code, which I knew was Chicago, and I was actually expecting a phone call from Chicago, but certainly not from the MacArthur Foundation. I was expecting a call from a furniture store, and uh, I couldn't understand why they, didn't, why they weren't leaving a message. Um, so finally, by the third or fourth attempt, I was back home sitting on my couch, and I said, okay, let's see what this is about. And the first thing I heard was, is this Marina Rusto? And I said, yes, and a little apprehensive. And, uh, and then they said, are you in a place where you can have a confidential conversation? And I thought, this has to be really, really bad news. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is either like a debt collector. There was some bill that never actually reached my home that's gone to collections <laughs> or um, somebody's died or something like that. And um, I was certainly not expecting the news that I, that I got. Was your daughter there by your side? She was there by my side. Um, they asked me at some point in the conversation, um, they said, you're allowed to tell one person. And I looked at my daughter <laughs> and I thought, this is not the person I'm going to tell. So um, finally, when she did find out, uh, a friend of mine convinced her to start calling me smarty pants instead of mom. Uh-huh. I lasted for about a day and that was kind of, kind of funny. Scholars have poured over the thousands of documents found in the Geniza for at least a century. In fact, Shlomo Gotain also won a MacArthur in the 80s for his work related to the Geniza in Cairo. What is it about this storehouse of texts that lends itself to such remarkable uh, investigation? So you're right that the documents have been out there and known by scholars you know, to, to exist um, for more than a century but Goytime was really the first to look at sort of um, mass quantities of them and to understand that what was special about the Geniza, which differentiates it from, you know, other kind of comparable caches, and there are compar- comparable caches, is that the Geniza 
is the largest, densest, and most coherent set of documents we have from really any medieval community, but certainly any medieval Jewish community. And that means that you can see, you know, a poem written by a cantor in a synagogue with an acrostic with his name, you know, embedded in the poem. And then you can find a letter in his handwriting or a contract with his signature at the bottom. Like, it's very rare to see a set of documents in which the same people are contributing in so many different ways to the documentary record. And that's one of the things that makes it special. So you can really then kind of uh, fill out certain personalities who existed in that community? Certainly. I mean, there, there are people who um, I have a distinct sense of knowing because I've seen them um, or read them communicating in so many different, you know, contexts. So, for example, um, in Jerusalem in the 11th century, there was the Rabbinic Academy, the yeshiva, um, which was both an educational institution but also an administrative body. And the guy who headed it was called a Gaon. And there's one of them in particular, Shlomo ben Yehuda, who um, became Gaon in 1025 and um, remained in the position for um, basically until he died in 1051. So 26 years is an inordinately long time to have held this position. And what that means is that he survived a lot of, um, you know, upstarts and rivals and people who wanted to, um, wanted to oust him from office. So he left a huge amount of correspondence, and it's correspondence of two types. There's the letters that he wrote in Hebrew in, like, a very clear scribal handwriting, either written by him or by his son, who would act as his secretary sometimes. And these are official pieces of correspondence, um, you know, where he's, where he's saying certain kinds of things on, you know, sort of for the record. But then there are also um, letters of his that he wrote in Judeo-Arabic, so Arabic and Hebrew characters, which for him was like a kind of informal register mm-hmm. where he's writing to friends of his and he's complaining about what it's actually like to be the leader of this community and how annoying it is that they're all trying to kind of like, you know, give him trouble. Um, and, you know, and then we also have contracts that he signed and um, letters written to him from a number of different people um, all over, you know, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt. And to get that kind of perspective on a single human being in the 11th century is very, very rare. And the letters uh, complaining, for instance, those would have been saved in the Geniza simply because at the top of the letter it would have said something like, praise God? Yeah, it's it's true that every time you write a letter, you begin um, in the name of the merciful one. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, I don't think that's really why these things ended up in the Geniza, because, you know, there are a lot of bits of paper that don't have the name of God. So I don't think that when people were throwing their stuff into the Geniza, they were kind of like, you know, going through it piece by piece and saying, okay, this one goes in, this one stays out. You know, they just dump stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and if you, you know, if, if we sort of could magically transport ourselves to the 11th century and walk around the streets of Fustat with a microphone and find Jews and say to them, you know, why do you throw things into the Geniza? We would probably get lots of different answers. So in your work, uh, I understand, from what I understand about your work, your examination of the documents in the Geniza is something of a departure from uh, studies that previous investigators have undertaken. How so? What, what are you doing that's different? So the, the most, um, the largest body of 
scholarship that we have on the documentary part of the Geneva concerns the Jewish community in one way or another, which is logical, right? Because if this was a central repository for the Jewish community, then you're going to find lots of documents that are about communal administration, that are about the rabbinical courts. Um, you also find a lot of information about traders, um, you know, merchants who were going enormously long distances away from Egypt, but they had because they had something to do with the official Jewish community, their mercantile correspondence ended up in the Geniza. All of that material is written in Hebrew script, whether it's in Hebrew or in the case of, um, of court documents in Aramaic um, or in Judeo-Arabic. There's a significant subset of material in the Geniza that's written in Arabic scripts. And I'm certainly not the first to look at it, but it has not garnered nearly as much interest as the Hebrew script material. Um, one of the really uh, sort of fascinating and ironic parts of this is that when I first started getting interested in the Arabic script material and began to realize that some of the Arabic script documents were um, official state documents of the sort that we had absolutely no parallel for, um, I looked through some of the old catalogs. There's a catalog of the Bodleian Collection in Oxford that was published in 1906, and every time there was a Fatimid uh, petition or decree, the catalog said exactly the same thing, scribbling. And it got to the point where when I was going through the catalog, every time I saw the word scribbling, I got really excited because I said, this could be a really important official document. Um, you know, people just didn't have a sense of the importance of the Arabic script material. They didn't find it legible because it's written in a kind of chancery scrawl that's written, you know, for chancery scribes. So it's not particularly clear. Um, not enough water had passed under the bridge um, in terms of the scholarship on this material for people to realize its significance. So... There, there were three scholars who worked on the Arabic script material before I did, um, one of whom teaches at Cambridge University. I mean, he's a, a, a close collaborator of mine, Jeffrey Kahn. But that's it. I mean, we're talking about four people as against, you know, dozens who have worked on the Hebrew script material. So, okay, so why am I interested in the Arabic script material? We, we don't have any state archives from this period at all. So the kind of thing, the kind of information that you'd really want to know about taxation, um, governance, how did people actually interact with the state, this kind of thing, we don't have access to that information from almost any other um, uh, Middle Eastern community before the Ottoman period. The Ottomans um, were tremendous producers and storers of documents, so the Ottoman archives contain literally millions um, of items. But before the Ottoman period, before about 1500, there's nothing. Um, you have a few tiny archives here and there, um, but nothing on the order of what we have in the Geniza. And that means that it kind of boxes above its weight. Um, and anything that we can find there in Arabic produced in government circles is already going to tell us a vast amount more than we knew before. So, you know, it, it's the pendulum has kind of swung um, in a couple of different directions. It used to be that nobody was really interested in history of the state anymore. That's kind of like boring old-fashioned history. Now the state has become much more interesting to historians because, um, you know, we realize that the, even the state has a social history, by which I mean, sometimes I say, this is actually quoting a, another historian, that I like to do history from the bottom all the way up to the top, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning not just how is the state governing from the top down, but how are people experiencing um, tax collecting, petitioning the government, um, you know, this kind of thing, like, what can we really say about the interaction between the two? And for this period, the Geniza is our only source of that. 
Wow. So was it just not customary before the Ottomans to keep archives or were the Fatimids unique in their uh, lack of record keeping? That is the $64,000 question. <laughs> um, and I'm writing a whole book to try to answer it. So, uh, so I'll just give you in a nutshell my, you know, my current theory about this. There was a very robust culture of archiving um, in the Fatimid Empire. Um, we know that the state kept archives, that they had, there was a central archive in Cairo. And the question is, the material that should have remained in archives, why didn't it? So, you know, you might think, I mean, essentially the going theory out there is that these governments weren't particularly concerned with keeping things for posterity. That's one theory. Another theory is there was so much regime change in the Middle East that, you know, the new um, rulers would come in and they would destroy the archives of the old rulers. I don't actually think that either of those is a sufficient explanation for what we find in terms of archival material that did survive. I think what's happening is, like in any other archival culture, um, the people who are keeping the archives are pruning at the same time as they're also storing. I mean, any archive is curated. It does, you're not keeping things in perpetuity. There are different kinds of documents. There are documents that are written for storage. And then there are decrees that are written in a very like fancy way, long calligraphic scrolls with huge lines that are basically meant to impress people and to be read kind of out there in the territory, but you're not going to store them. Besides which, they're gigantic. Some of these decrees are 30 feet long. And if you are a government um, administrator out there in the territory and you're receiving a lot of these decrees, you're going to develop a huge stack of them in your office. And why keep them when they're keeping a much more compact version at the Central Archives in Cairo? So that's the kind of thing that I'm looking at is sort of the afterlives of documents, how did they circulate after they were written and read? And what can that tell us about the culture of archiving in the period? What are some of the discoveries that you've made so far that have most excited you? You can hear the wheels turning. In my <laughs> <mind>. <laughs> um, you know, it really is a kind of um, almost universal lament in the field of pre-modern Middle Eastern history, the lack of archives. So to the extent that, you know, in my work, I can sit there and kind of piece together an archive, that's already a huge contribution, let alone actually reading the stuff and figuring out what it says. So I'll give you an example. Um, there is uh, there are 10 of these long decree scrolls that have survived from the Fatimid period, and they all survived in Christian and Jewish archives. Um, and they were published in the 1960s by one of the scholars who preceded me um, in being interested in the Arabic script material um, from the Geniza, S.M. Stern. That's 10 documents, right? So I, in the process of doing this work on the Arabic script stuff, have found, you know, hundreds of fragments of these types of decrees, but it's very hard to piece them together. And one of the reasons that it's hard to piece them together, I mean, they were, you know, they were, um, they were cut up and reused, and because they were so long, you know, you could cut them into pieces and you could get kind of like, you know, 30 um, good-sized pieces of paper out of them um, and then, you know, write whatever you wanted to on them, letters or, um, you know, a lot of liturgical poems that are written on the backs of these things because the cantors and synagogues had to compose, you know, poems every week and they were absolutely desperate for scrap paper. Um, but how to put them together is a serious problem because there's so much blank space. When you're trying to reconstruct fragmentary documents, blank space is a huge liability because you don't know how the things fit together. They're not always perfect puzzle pieces because they can deteriorate on the edges, and so you don't always get a perfect fit. I was enormously fortunate. Um, I was on a fellowship in Oxford in 2011, and I was enormously fortunate to be working 
um, with a colleague named Ronnie Shweka, who was looking for a particular rabbinic text in the Geniza. Um, he found 120 fragments of it, and seven of those fragments fit together perfectly, seamlessly, wow. into a scroll, and on a, a long vertical scroll. And on the back, he saw these gigantic lines of Arabic script. And so he came to me and he said, you know, you're interested in the Arabic script material. What do you make of this? And I looked at him and I said, thank you. You've just given me a meter, 23 centimeters of a Fatima decree that I never could have pieced together myself because you had the text density on the Hebrew script side to actually be able to put it together. So, you know, that's what I'm talking about is like, we're not just going and finding the documents. We're literally, um, you know, almost creating or recreating the documents before we can even sit down and read them. Mm -hmm. It sounds so painstaking. I wonder, can you describe what is a typical workday like? Are you wearing gloves and pouring over basically disintegrating papyrus leaves with a magnifying glass? I mean, what is it physically like when you're doing this? So if you'd asked me this question 10 years ago, I would have said that there are two ways I work. One is I go to the library and I sit in a windowless, depressing room with bad fluorescent lighting, <laughs> looking at a microfilm reader. And, you know, you can, you can barely see anything on microfilm. It's terrible. Microfilm is like the worst way to work. And a lot of these microfilms were actually made in the 1960s, so not ideal imaging quality. Um, and by the end of the day, my eyes are really, really tired, and I don't want to read or write or look at anything. In fact, um, one of the reasons that I was really committed throughout my 20s and 30s to playing um, musical instruments, mostly Middle Eastern musical instruments, is that I would get home from a work day when I was writing my dissertation, and I'd just be like, I cannot look at anything. I can only use my ears, and I'd sit there and I'd just you know, practice music for a while. Um, so that was like a sort of great savior. And the other way that you work is, you know, that you would work 10 years ago is you'd um, spend a huge amount of money on a plane ticket, um, another huge amount of money on a hotel room, and go to, you know, Cambridge, England, or Oxford, or wherever the manuscripts were that you wanted to look at, and then you'd try to maximize your time in the archive, which means, you know, you get there at 9, you're looking at stuff until they kick you out at 7, and you're barely eating in between because you don't want to waste the time. Um, none of that is true anymore. Now a typical workday for me is um, once I get home from dropping my kid at school, um, I come home and I sit on my living room couch and I open up the computer and I look at beautiful, high-resolution digital images. And then with the magic of Adobe Photoshop, I can even piece together some of these documents where, like, you know, the bottom half is in New York and the top half is in Oxford. Wow. What are some of the skills that you have that make you so good at this work? I mean, is it linguistic? Is it about actually making puzzles? Is it a kind of archaeology of documents? I mean, what is your particular skill set? There are all kinds of things that go into it. And, you know, I'm certainly not alone in, in having this particular combination. Anyone who does work like this, whether it's a Giniza or, or um, you know, papyrologists work the same way, you have to have – so languages for sure – and not just languages, languages in dialects that there aren't really textbooks or dictionaries to tell you what's going on. The only way you can really figure out how these people in particular are using languages is by reading more and more and more documents and kind of getting the feel of how their, you know, particular approach to writing documents works. Um, but beyond that, I mean, there are a couple of different things. You have to be very patient. And I actually I have a theory that one of the reasons that the people who work in my field are generally speaking so kind of like nice and kind and, you know, generous and pleasant to work with is that there's a kind of humility to it where you're sitting down with a document and you know that it could take you a week just to figure out like what the letters on it are. 
you know, this is not work for the irascible or the impatient mm-hmm. um, or, or even, you know, for the terribly narcissistic because you're not going to be able to read everything. There's, you know, you're always being defeated um, by something on the page. I mean, one of the things I tell my students is with the Arabic script material, which is actually much harder to read than the Hebrew script material, um, just in terms of making out the letters, um, you can spend 20% of your time reading 80% of the text. And then you spend that 80% of your time just trying to crack the, the, the remaining 20% of text because you always get to the point where there are diminishing returns and where your eyes are staring at it and you just can't figure out what it's saying. And then you have to call in as many colleagues as possible. I mean, this is work that's really done best collaboratively. And so, you know, so there's, I would say that there's a lot of, um, you know, there, there, there's not a lot of sort of scholarly backbiting and competition in the field because we need each other. Um, so, so that's another thing. And then once you've actually, you know, so you have to have this sort of drive to like, you know, crack the puzzle. Um, and then once you've done that, you, you, what, what you really need is historical imagination. I mean, it's not that different from a novelist sitting down and thinking, well, what would my character say in this particular situation? You kind of go into your, you know, into your happy place mm-hmm. and you try and, uh, you try and answer these questions. It's just that historians answer the questions within much tighter constraints, because you have to be true to what the evidence is actually telling you. Um, so I would say that imagination is enormously important, both for coming up with interesting questions and also for answering them. That's not to say that you just get to make up the answers, but it is to say that to ask a really good question, you have to be able to kind of reimagine the scene. So, Marina, this award, as everyone seems to know, comes with a lot of money, more than $600,000. What are you thinking that you might do with that cash? Get out of debt. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, there's a really nice pair of boots I have on. <laughs> no, uh, but seriously, um, I have no idea. I, uh, I'm really thinking about the award much less in terms of, you know, kind of like, let me drop a budget and figure out how to use the money. I'm thinking it in terms of opening a window that this may be an opportunity for me to kind of slow down a little bit you know, maybe hit the pause button or like, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use, decant the wine and let it kind of <laughs> open up for a while and air um, to do a different kind of work where instead of sort of, you know, racing to the finish line, I really need to finish this book manuscript because I want to start on the next project and, and that kind of thing to slowing down a little bit and maybe going a little bit deeper into documents I wouldn't have looked at or, um, or going broader into a type of document that I never found interesting before. I mean, I think part of the exciting bit is that I have no idea where this is going to take me. What I do know is that I already feel, even at this early stage, um, you know, having been notified about the award, like in a way it's given me license to sort of think outside the box. Like, you know, it, you, you, you never know. You take risks in any academic field, in any field of research. Um, partly it's about the kind of risks you take, but but risks are risks in the sense that you have no idea whether they're going to pay off. And in a sense, what the foundation is telling all of us is, um, you know, we appreciate the way you have been taking risks. So go ahead and take some more of them. Marina Resto, congratulations again. Next time we meet, I'm going to let you get the check. Marina Resto is a professor of Near Eastern Studies and History at Princeton University. She's also a recipient of this year's MacArthur Fellowship. 
If you want to know even more about the Geniza in Cairo, we have another podcast you can listen to. We spoke some years ago with Peter Cole and Athena Hoffman. They wrote a book called Sacred Trash, which is a beautiful volume all about the Cairo Geniza. The book is from Nextbook Press, and you can find out more about it on our website, tabletmag.com. And if you go there, search for Vox Tablet to find it. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Who do you think should get a Genius Award next year? Or here's something that could more realistically come to pass. Who do you want us to talk to? Send your tips and your suggestions to podcast at tabletmag.com. If you're not already a Vox Tablet subscriber, we urge you to become one. You can do it very easily on iTunes, on Stitcher, or on any other podcast browser. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Thank you so very much for listening. Please do join us again.